In the United States, a tenured faculty position is an academic appointment that can only be dismissed for misconduct or in rare cases, lack of funding or program discontinuation. The purpose of tenure is to allow academic freedom without the threat of losing one's employment for promoting controversial ideas such as evolutionary biology or contentious literature. The view is that academic freedom is crucial in teaching and research, and society will benefit if scholars are free to explore a variety of topics, questions, and opinions. It also prevents schools from replacing more expensive seasoned teachers with less expensive novice teachers to save money. However, some believe that the tenure system doesn't provide incentive for faculty to remain productive after they are tenured. Tenure track versus non-tenure track. The tenure process is rigorous, and it can be brutal. New tenure track faculty members typically have a limited amount of time to produce an adequate record of teaching, research, such as grants and publications, and service, so committees, advising, program administration, stuff like that. At BGSU, assistant professors, which is the first rank, have five years. At that time, they must either be tenured or dismissed from the university. In other words, they must publish or perish. The third and final rank for tenure-track faculty is professor or full professor. At BGSU, we also have full-time non-tenure-track faculty who are ineligible for tenure. We call these faculty members qualified rank faculty, or QRF. Their ranks parallel the tenure-track ranks progressing from assistant teaching professor to associate teaching professor and finally teaching professor. Typically, non-tenure-track faculty do not have a research commitment, but they have higher teaching loads along with a service commitment. Colleges and universities also hire part-time teachers called adjunct faculty. Adjuncts are typically paid on a per-course basis, and they do not work enough hours to be eligible for health insurance, retirement plans, or other employee benefits. Graduate faculty. There are varying levels of graduate faculty statuses, along with increasing amounts of privileges. At BGSU, the highest level, level one, may allow a faculty member to chair a doctoral dissertation committee or a master's thesis committee, participate as a member of a thesis or dissertation committee, and all other graduate responsibilities associated with both the master's and doctoral level of graduate study, and teach graduate courses of any level. They may also participate as a graduate faculty representative on dissertation committees and represent a graduate program at the Graduate Council. In the Department of Biological Sciences at BGSU, maintaining graduate faculty status is extremely important to many tenure-track faculty since we have master's and doctoral programs and tenure-track faculty run their own lab full of graduate students, help them define their projects, and ideally help them publish their research. The professors also write grants to fund their labs and oftentimes to pay graduate student stipends. Grants may also pay for postdoctoral researchers to work in their labs and sometimes undergraduates. Undergraduate research. Undergraduate students are encouraged to work alongside graduate students, postdoctoral scholars, and professors in the various biology labs at BGSU. Undergraduates must volunteer their time and sometimes the work is tedious. However, the rewards are invaluable. Ideally, the undergraduate will find a mentor in the lab who will teach them how to become a productive scientist, 
illuminate the cultural nuances of academia, and explain theory, philosophy, and concepts. Participating in a graduate lab as an undergraduate will also allow for socialization to occur with undergraduate as opportunities to meet other students, scientists, and researchers working in the field. If the undergraduate feels accepted into the lab, they may gain a very powerful sense of community. Sense of community. Macmillan and Chavez, 1986, define sense of community as a feeling that members have of belonging, a feeling that members matter to one another and to the group, and a shared faith that members' needs will be met through their commitment to be together. According to distinguished Syracuse University sociology professor Vincent Tinto, 1975, for students to persist in college, they must become socially and academically integrated into the university and the associated communities found within. In fact, according to professor and chair of the doctoral programs in higher education at USA Pacific University, Laurie Schreiner, 2013, developing a sense of community among college students has been shown to be a strong predictor of a student's success and it is the absolute best way to help all students thrive on campus. She defines thriving as being fully engaged intellectually, socially, and emotionally in the college experience. Uh, Schreiner, 2010. Success is typically measured as academic performance or graduation. However, Schreiner looks far beyond that and states that students who are thriving are engaged in the learning process invest effort to reach important educational goals, manage their time and commitments effectively, connect in healthy ways to other people, are optimistic about their future and positive about their present choices, and are committed to making a meaningful difference in the world around them. Schreiner, 2010. Guest Introduction Today's guest has built a lab that attracts both thriving graduate and undergraduate students. He currently oversees a doctoral student, three master's students, and a few advanced undergraduates. The lab studies how human alteration of environmental factors influences the dynamics of animals in terrestrial and aquatic food webs and ecosystems using integrative approaches. Their work investigates basic ecological questions that have importance for achieving sustainable environmental management and in changing world. Their four key research areas are one, Terrestrial water webs, studying the direct effects of animal water balance, so sources and losses, on trophic interactions and food webs, which they have named water webs. For instance, previous work has shown that spiders and crickets will drink their food under dry conditions, consuming large amounts in order to meet water requirements rather than energy or nutrients. Two, water quantity and quality effects on aquatic terrestrial linkages. So studying how changes in water quality and quantity influences the reciprocal feedbacks between adjacent aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. For instance, they've shown strong effects of river drying on streamside animals. They're also investigating the influence of variation in macronutrients like phosphates or trace chemicals like caffeine on rates of emergence of aquatic insects and how changes to fluxes influence streamside spiders and birds. Number three, urbanization and climate change. People are increasingly moving to cities and altering those environments. 
Cities and mesic regions are becoming warmer and drier in ways that can mimic the projected effects of climate change. Cities in xeric areas become wetter and may become cooler, at least sometimes in some areas. They are studying how alteration of environmental factors in cities influences animal ecology in ways that may indicate potential effects of climate change. Moreover, their research will inform management decisions in cities that could maximize ecosystem services and minimize disservices in the key places where most people live. Number four. Uh, ravine macrosystems. Rivers are dynamic, connected systems, both in space and in time. Because of this, examining the ecology of a single stream reach at a single time point provide little information about plant and animal population fluctuations. Taking a broader view, it becomes apparent that animal populations in unaltered river systems demonstrate great resistance and resilience to year-to-year environmental fluctuations due to some defects of asynchronous population dynamics and variable habitats. But human alterations to these river systems can reduce the resistance and resilience. They study how the spatial arrangement of these human alterations can influence broad-scale long-term population dynamics, thus connecting management decisions to ravine ecosystem services and disservices. Today's guest has been working very long hours to get his lab up and running over the past five years, and he has recently been tenured in the biological sciences at BGSU. He is a friend and colleague. Please welcome... Dr. Kevin McClooney. Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Professor, where you will find interviews of college faculty, staff, administrators, students, and alumni every week. Topics cover all aspects of formal and informal learning in higher education. The goal of this podcast is to help faculty understand the best ways to teach and for students to understand the best ways to learn. Your host is a teaching professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University. He's been faculty and the director of the BGSU Marine Lab since 1999. Now on to the show with your host, Dr. Matthew L. Parton. Dr. Kevin McClooney, welcome to uh, my office, I guess. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a couple questions today. Let me make sure audio is working. All right, I think we're, think we're good. So I had a few questions that I wanted to discuss with you today. And first off, though, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your educational background. Uh, yeah, so my educational background prior to coming here to BGSU, um, I did what you call a postdoc, which uh, th- this is after you get your PhD, but before you get a faculty position, you do these positions in uh, at another university helping with the research. And I actually did three of those, uh, one in North Carolina at NC State University, another at Arizona State University, another at Colorado State University. And then uh, prior to that, I got my PhD at Arizona State University. Um, And then prior to that, uh, I got a bachelor's degree from Florida State University. And Florida is where I grew up. Okay, so you're from Florida. Oh, well, welcome to uh, windy and cold Bowling Green, Ohio. It's been a little adjustment, (laughs) but getting used to it now. So, all right, so you uh, earned your bachelor's and then eventually you see you said Arizona and you uh, earned your PhD out there. Yeah. And then three postdocs. Three postdocs, yeah. Uh, so what, what is the nature of a postdoc? You're just primarily doing research in somebody's lab. 
That's that's the basic of it. Yeah. So they usually what happens is they get a grant that was funded, um, and you, they need some extra help doing the research that's designated in that grant. And so you're hired to come in and work on that. So it's it's a kind of an interesting experience. You're just there to do research. It's very different from being a faculty member, and it's very different from being a grad student. And it's very different from being an undergrad. So okay, so yeah. uh, three of those. So that's. Yeah. That's what it takes these days to earn a professorship somewhere. Is that sometimes? Yeah, sometimes. sometimes yeah. So yeah. So not always. Not always. <laughs> so so you got three postdocs, and then now you uh, were hired at BGSU five years ago. Uh, about that, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. Yeah. And it's been. Uh, I know you've been extremely busy. I see <laughs> you running around the building. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it took you uh, as this time to set up your lab and get everything running and you got all your students in there and you guys are going full tilt. Yeah. Uh, you just received a uh, grant recently. Congratulations yeah. on Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And tenure. And well, and, not yet. You haven't heard, oh, so you haven't got your official <laughs> no, uh, letter yeah. from the provost yet, but <laughs> got, got a good, uh, vote at the department level. So okay. that's part okay. of the process. So now yeah. it, it goes on to the Dean yeah, and the Dean looks over your credentials and then from there they pass it on to the provost that's and right. then the provost explores your credentials. All right, so yeah. <laughs> so and then it's the board of trustees. I oh, think, the finally. trustees—they're the yeah. ones that make the final decision. Oh, so okay. yeah, so you still have uh, yeah. a little ways to go, but yeah, probably not till like March or April. So but but we're, we're we're pretty yeah. sure that you're going to be okay since you've got a pretty good record of teaching public. Uh, you got your publications, you got your grants. Seems good so far. <laughs> you got all your service in line. Yeah. So yeah. all right, so so a uh, little bit of that's your background. So. Obviously, along the way, you've done a whole lot of studying and learning. You're constantly teaching yourself how to do new things. Yeah. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how you prefer to learn or how do you believe that you learn best? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think I actually learn best when I have uh, some kind of particular goal in mind. So, uh, you know, I need to learn about this topic, right? And so I can do targeted um, reading for learning about that topic. And I usually start with something very general, very broad. You, you know, professors often say they don't like Wikipedia, but I like that as a good starting place. <laughs> I do too. That's, I don't that's where to, I start a lot of times. Yeah, exactly. I don't have to trust everything that's in a Wikipedia right, page, right. but it can give me some decent background. And then that'll help me move on to uh, more academic sources and, and being able to really delve into those and, uh, and read about those. So that's... That's a, and then really, you know, I think you don't really know if you understand it until you try to apply it. Right. 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 So trying to apply the, the knowledge that I've gained to a new situation is, uh, that's really the final point, I think, at, for, for me. Okay. Yeah. So, so, and you've been using uh, peer learning assistance yeah. in your classes. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the undergraduate learning assistant program is pretty cool. So if I have a large class that I, I need to teach, like 90 students, 100 students, 150 students, um, you know, it can be kind of impersonal. You know, I don't have a personal relationship with every single student in there. Um, but if I have undergraduate learning assistants, it allows them to uh, work directly with each of the students and have a closer relationship. Um, and then it also allows me to have more um, productive class discussions. 
so that we can break into groups and and people can discuss and work on things in those groups and then we can discuss it as a class as well um and it just it seems to work a lot better that way okay yeah. so uh, and you, this is the what second, third year you've you've used a peer learning assistance. I think this is the fourth year. I've fourth year, it. yeah. Okay, <laughs> so you're a veteran now. You getting there, yeah. And and you have a veteran peer learning assistance. I helping do. You out. Yeah, actually, I've got six this semester, and five of them are all returning uh, learning assistants that are graduating. So <laughs> they're going to be leaving me. <laughs> so so this is so it's it's uh, about a what fifteen to one. Yes, LA to, to, one ratio. to student ratio. Mm-hmm. Yep, and um, so I usually divide those into <clears throat> groups of three or four. Okay, mm-hmm. so each uh, peer learning assistant will have three or four groups of about fifteen students or so. Oh uh, no, or I mean uh, uh, have, five students if so. Yeah, they'll usually have about five groups of three students. Oh, so yeah. okay, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, some people use groups of five. So you use yeah. groups of three. I like groups of three. Yeah. I think groups of five, this is from a learning standpoint. They're, they're large enough that people can hide too much <laughs> yeah. and just not really participate. So at you all. have two people do the whole thing and the other three just kind of look at their phone. Right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So I'll, you've recently, or you're on the path to tenure and you've done all the hard work. Now it's just waiting for some people to look at what you've done over the past five years. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that process? What did it take? I, I think that most people know that it's, it's very rigorous. I mean, yeah. to, to, to go through the process of tenure to, to, yeah. to build up the, the proper credentials and the resume or the, the CV uh, that's going to lead to tenure. Could you talk a little bit about what it takes to become tenured as a professor? Yeah, so I, I think it depends on what university you're, you're at. But at, at BGSU, in our department, it varies by department too, um, it takes showing a record of publication, uh, a record of attempting to get grants and uh, ideally getting some grant funding. Um, and it takes uh, success with teaching using uh, good practices and, and getting good um, evaluations. Okay. So. And so uh, you, you get your publications and then uh, you, you've, uh, you've obviously got your grant now. Mm-hmm. And just building the lab itself, I guess, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. You have how many graduate students working in there right now? Right now I have four, okay. um, which I think is a good number. Um, I've had six at the maximum. Um, I've had two at the minimum. Okay. So, um, but four is a good number, I think. How many doctoral students and master's students? uh, Currently, it's one uh, PhD student, doctoral student, and three master's students. That's varied over time. Okay. So, yeah. How long have you had your doctoral student? Uh, he just started. Okay. So you're... Yeah. But I had two others that just finished. Yeah. Okay. So, so off the record... Do you prefer the master's or doctoral students? Because, <laughs> um, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you have a yeah. master's student there, you train them, they're gone. You train yeah. them, they're gone, they're training. In terms of like, you know, for, from a selfish standpoint of productivity, <laughs> PhD students generally are better, but it depends on the student, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. In terms of like getting a lot of, prob- a lot of times with a master's student, um, they don't get to the point where they've submitted their 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 research for publication before they graduate. 
And so then it becomes more difficult to get that publication submitted and published. Right. Whereas PhD students, that often happens before they graduate, and then you can really help them push that along. Right, right. And so, yeah, I can see that. What about uh, undergraduates? I know you've taken in some very Mm -hmm. successful undergraduates in the past. Could you talk a little bit about that? How how many do you normally, I I mean, I know that... Uh, it's it's difficult to take undergraduates in um, because sometimes they show up and express, say, oh, yeah, I really want to work in your lab. They show up to one or two meetings and then they disappear. Right. Uh, or yeah. you start you start training somebody and then they're gone halfway through the semester. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's a challenge. I guess what has been your experience with undergraduates, mm-hmm. researchers in your lab? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I've had variable experiences, but overall they've been very good. Um, I I have a approach uh, basically if someone contacts me and expresses interest in the lab, I usually um, ask them to start volunteering, um, often helping a grad student, um, and so we'll see how that goes, right? And if they show up regularly and help the grad student, then that's a good sign, and we can continue from there. Um, and they can p- develop an independent research project that they do themselves then, right? right. Um, also, sometimes uh, if when I have grant funding, I'm able to actually hire the students, and I've been lucky to be able to hire a, num- a large number of undergraduate students and pay them um, a little bit during the school year and uh, a lot more over the summer um, to do research for these grants. Oh, so, great. Yeah. So they're, they're they doing some... Uh, more some of the the tedious work of uh, what do you have them do? Sometimes it's tedious. Yeah, sometimes it's you know sitting under a microscope and sorting things out, trying to find things or identify um, insects. Sometimes it's going out into the field and collecting samples, which I think is a lot of fun. It can be hard work, but yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. Um, but you know, even the tedious stuff can be interesting. I think it depends on. Your interests, right? Right. So I think sitting under a microscope trying to identify insects can be tedious, but it can also be really interesting to see all those little tiny microscopic features on all the different uh, insects that you're looking at through the through the microscope. So, but then there's other things. It's just, it really is just tedious. You know, you got to weigh stuff. My, my uh, third postdoc, so here I already have a PhD on my third postdoc, and I probably spent um, maybe... 50 to 100 hours just sitting there weighing things, right? <laughs> yeah, Putting something right. on a balance, waiting for it to stabilize, writing down the, the, the weight, taking it off and putting another one on. And I just put on some headphones, listen to a book on tape, listen to some music, and it was good. Right, and it's just so, a necessary step in the process. That's right. I mean, you need the data, and yeah. that's how you collect it. That's right. And, all right, so I, yeah, I, so I took a limnology class as an undergraduate and my at the very beginning of the class, I was like, "Oh man, I'm looking at, through the microscope at all of these yeah. microscopic things." And, and and at first, I I was really put off by it because that's not what I wanted to do. I want to work with big things, octopus, and, right? You know, corals and yeah. fish. You know, yeah. and uh, I guess the more that I began to learn about these microscopic organisms the more interesting they became. And I, in, yeah. in, in, in I actually began to enjoy spending long hours looking at them underneath the microscope because I knew what they were and what they were doing and I could see their digestive tracts and it was just really cool. Yeah, You know, the more you know about this. So, so I, I guess I'm wondering how much mentoring occurs 
for your undergraduates in the lab. So yeah. is, is there anybody there that's going to help explain, hey, this is what you're looking at and give them maybe a little bit of the theory and some of the concepts and a little bit of understanding of what they're looking at? Yeah. So um, like I said, usually when people start in the lab, I have the grad students mentor them. I'm around too, though. Mm-hmm. So if they're around, we will talk. You right, know? right. So uh, uh, recently with one of our current undergrads, uh, you know, she'll come in and she'll be working with grad students sometimes. And sometimes I'll come over and I'll try to help her figure out what something is. And, and we'll talk a little bit about the, what the purpose of the project is. That's what I always do with that at the, at the beginning of the project. Um, and so, yeah, definitely like providing that context. I invite all the undergrads to come to our lab meetings mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of uh, mentoring occurs. So um, we talk about that. And then as the, uh, and if they're, if they're employees on a grant, we definitely have um, meetings and talk about what they're doing for that. And then if they start doing independent research project, typically I will start meeting with the student on a regular basis. So. Oh. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you prefer, I mean, how do they initially contact you? Do you just send you an email? Yeah. Or, email, email works great. Or would yeah. you rather, do they just show up in your lab and knock on the door? Or? Uh, email's probably better. Or probably better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just too busy sometimes. Right, I'll, right. I won't have time to do that. But, uh, but if they email me, um, ideally, if they also could include some kind of a resume, that's great. Right. Um, uh, if not, that's okay too. But, uh, you know, it just gives us more information if you've got your resume there. Absolutely, so, yeah. and and so I, it, I mean, obviously you're extremely busy, and it takes a lot of your time to train your yeah. graduate students as yeah. well as any undergraduates that want to become involved in the lab. Yeah, um, I guess. Uh, how much time do you expect in return? For you know, <laughs> for your time, you're giving them your time, training them to do this, and, and introducing them to other researchers in your field, I right. guess, wh- how much time do you expect the undergraduates to put into uh, working in your lab? Yeah. So I would say, you know, uh, I would hope that it's going to be so- at least two or three hours a week. That's like the minimum. Um, in general, my personal philosophy is I want to be paying people to do research. Mm-hmm. Um, so although that's not always possible if I don't have a grant to, to pay them, um, that's my goal, right? right. So, uh, but volunteering is kind of the way to start. And I know that's difficult for a lot of people if they need a job, right? Yeah, right. But if they can work in two hours a week somewhere, and I let people do stuff on nights and weekends, so it doesn't have to be during nine to five. Right. Um, so they can work in two hours a week and get their feet wet and show us that uh, they're committed. Then that can result in in paid positions. So, yeah. So what is the benefit to an undergraduate coming into your lab and working alongside your graduate students and with yourself? Oh, I think there's tons of benefits. I mean, I... so. I could speak from my own experience because I was an undergraduate research assistant when I was an undergrad. And it just, I think it transformed my college experience, right? It it definitely made everything I was learning real world. It's like, here we are, we're trying to answer uh, scientific questions that have never been answered before by anybody. Um, I was in, in particular in a conservation biology lab. And so we were trying to look at the conservation of endangered species and understand how to better 
um, conserve them. Right. And so, uh, you know, this very real world applicable. I could see what I was doing in my classes was related. Um, I also had kind of a, another kind of community, right? So as an undergrad, most of my community was my fellow students, you know, in the dorms with me, going to classes with me. Um, and that, you know, everybody at that stage is a particular uh, mindset, right? Well, this gave me another community that was grad students and a professor that really cared about how I did in college, right? And, um, and valued my, my help and contribution. And it was a, it was a really cool thing to have that uh, kind of different kind of um, experience as well. Yeah, yeah, so you still uh, ever see that pr- old professor around, or uh, I I did until recently. She she actually retired um, the year I graduated. Okay, uh, but she was emeritus faculty. She may still have an office there. Um, and I saw her at a meeting probably about maybe about seven years ago was the last time I saw her. That's yeah, cool, and that's but, that's actually got to be pretty cool for her to see you. Yeah. You know, after you know taking you into her lab and. Yeah. And then watching you go through the, the, she taught me so much about how to do science. So yeah. you know, I, 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 that's before I even went and got a PhD, right? So you think your graduate um, advisor is going to teach you how to do science, and that's true. But my undergraduate advisor was research advisor was just as influential, if not more so. And so now yeah. you're paying it forward with uh, right. your graduate students and the undergrads that you take in. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely feel that way. Like I've benefited from so many like great mentors during my academic career and I I feel like the need to pay it forward. So that's great. Yeah. Dr. McClooney, thank you so much for coming out here and talking with me in my problem, my office space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Listening to the Teaching and Learning Professor with Dr. Matthew L. Parton. If you like our show and want to know more, check out his webpage at blogs.bgsu.edu/slash.